I think to keep us on time, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Um, this morning was more of a didactic uh, lecture type um, presentations, but we're now moving into a case-based portion of the day. So we really encourage your participation and your questions at this point. Um, the AETC participant information forms are here now. Please complete those before you leave today and return them uh, to Kimberly. The cases that we are presenting are not available yet, but they'll be available in a few days, and that's because the answers are in the cases, so we couldn't give them to you or it wouldn't be any fun. Okay, so um, I'm going to talk about a tre treating a treatment-naive patient, some of the decisions that you make around the lab tests that need to be obtained and some of the considerations. Okay, so here are my objectives. Determine the necessary baseline lab test. Discuss the considerations in selecting hep C treatment for a treatment-naive patient. And then uh, recognize therapeutic classes of medications with the potential for interactions with um, hepatitis C therapies. Okay, so this is our patient. He's a 54-year-old African-American male. He has genotype 1B. Um, he's treatment-naive, viral load around 2 million. His AST is 339, ALT 306. Um, we see his and albumin here, platelets 150, hemoglobin 16.4. He lives in Denver, so his hemoglobins are a little higher. Okay, what else do you want to know about this patient? Absolutely. So as Dr. Kim talked about, you know, we can use a variety of different um, measures to assess that, but definitely want to know whether or not he has cirrhosis. What else? Alcohol use. Mm -hmm. Yes, renal function. Yes, very good. We want to know his GFR because that will impact our treatment choice as well. HIV status. Yes, indeed. What else? Hepatitis B status, perfect. Yes. You mean around which drugs you would choose? Um, yes, so currently there's no recommendation for treating um, with the DAAs in pregnancy, um, but you would, you know, uh, try to treat a patient hopefully before they would be considering pregnancy. Um, we will also talk about some options for contraception with the DAAs. Other medications? Mm -hmm. You knew I was going to get to that. <laughs> okay, so um, I'm not going to give you all of those things just yet because i got to build on the case. Um, so in terms of if, if Dr. Sag didn't make this clear already, you know, the guidance provides um, you know, a really good resource, and in particular for prepping patients for treatment. So there's a section here on um, testing, evaluating, and monitoring where you can uh, determine what tests need to be done prior to initiating the therapy. Okay, so here are a few of those um, lab or um, patient information uh, items that you requested. So he got a transient elastography and his score was seven. What is, is that cirrhotic or not cirrhotic? What was the cutoff for cirrhosis? Um, it's 12 and a half, so he's at seven here. And then 
what do you guys think? Was this a good fiber scan score? So just like with biopsies, there is a um, kind of a good fiber scan and a bad fiber scan. How would you determine if this was a good or a, or a bad uh, test? What do you think? Is this a, a good um, uh, IQR here? What variability are you willing to accept in the, in the measurement? What do you think, Dr. Kim? What do you guys? Yeah, sure. Yeah, no one. And if the um, result is over 20%, are you more concerned that it is incorrect? Okay, and then um, his renal function, he has good renal function, so we uh, you know, don't have to worry as much about that in selecting treatment. And then hepatitis B test, so he's surface antigen, uh, core antigen negative, and then uh, surface antibody positive. And then he has been vaccinated against hepatitis A. So there were a few other lab tests or information that you wanted, and that's coming. Okay, so just in terms of um, testing for hepatitis B to try to prevent reactivation of the hepatitis B virus during hepatitis uh, C treatment. So if you're not familiar with this, this has been reported um, post-market. So we excluded patients that had hepatitis B in the trials. So we did not have this information um, through the clinical trials, but we, we, um, there were several cases reported of individuals having a um, reactivation of their hepatitis B virus when they were being treated for hepatitis C. And the mechanism for this isn't completely understood, um, but it is important to test for hepatitis B in these patients to determine the need for prophylaxis. So here's an algorithm. This is from um, clinical care options. But in a patient that tests surface antigen positive, if they have a detectable HBV DNA, then you should treat them for their hepatitis B according to the AASLD um, guidelines. If they have a low or undetectable DNA, then you can choose either to initiate a prophylactic um, NRTI or you could monitor them during treatment. Um, and if the HBV DNA increases, then you can initiate the uh, NRTI at that time. If they're surface antigen negative and core antibody positive, it's a little less clear what to do in this situation, but we certainly monitor these patients a little more carefully. Any uh, thoughts from the group about Hep B reactivation or additional points we should make about this? Yes.
so they would be the same ones that are preferred for treatment, which would be tenofovir, either tenofovir dizoproxyl fumarate or tenofovir alafenamide, and particularly if it is an HIV positive patient, because then you're killing two birds with one stone. So you would use that in combination with um, FTC uh, or entecavir would also be an option. Yeah, so we don't, we have data with TDF, obviously, and TAP. We don't have data with entecavir, but it's a guanosine nucleoside analog. And so I wouldn't anticipate an inter a problem with sofosbuvir, which is a uridine-based analog. And reactivation carries a pretty high mortality rate. It, of course, depends on the hepatitis B status, but I think it's around 25% overall, so it's really important, you know, that we uh, assess the patient's hep B status. Likelihood, uh, just the, again, the, the cost-benefit thing, again, I, I don't want to make it a cost thing, but I don't, I, we don't do viral load routinely. Yeah. Now, if somebody has surface antigen positive, then it's a bit different, then right. you might want to do it. But core antibody, I would just monitor them. I don't think adding the extra cost of the viral load is necessary. Uh, you know, the number needed, uh, the number needed to identify a case is very high, and the number needed to treat to prophylax is also very high. So, you know, I don't fault you for that, believe me. And there is a distinction then between those that would be surface antibody positive and those that would be surface antibody negative in that situation as well, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah, so I think so. Certainly if they're um, surface antibody positive, then you feel pretty confident that they have cleared their hepatitis B infection. Um, Okay, so if you look at the guidelines, you'll see that in most uh, clinical scenarios, the treatment of, treatments of choice include sofosbuvir lidipasvir, sofosbuvir velpatasvir, elbasvir grazoprevir, and glucaprevir probrinosvir, or GP. Um, so we're gonna be focusing on these particular DAA regimens today. So um, Mike gave you uh, the, the clue to figuring out what class they're in, but I've color-coded them here just um, as a different way of uh, remembering what class they're in. And you'll see that as, um, as Dr. Sag mentioned, that the GP regimen includes three pills. Um, the others include one pill once a day, so uh, pretty easy regimens to take. Okay, so how do I choose between these four different preferred or recommended options? Here are some considerations. The hepatitis C genotype, um, the presence of resistance-associated uh, substitutions at baseline, so we will talk about where that matters and when that matters. Um, severity of liver disease, the patient's renal function, and then of course, uh, my favorite topic, drug interactions. Okay, so here's your first audience response question here. In which patient populations should this uh, RAS testing be performed? So baseline patients have, can have several um, resistance-associated substitutions. In what clinical scenarios will they impact um, potentially the treatment outcome.
Okay, so let's see the responses here. So genotype 1A, non-serotic with Lodipavir, Sofosbuvir. No one chose that one, good. Genotype 3, serotic with GP. About 15% of you chose that. Uh, genotype 1A, non-serotic, Elbisvir, Grisoprovir, 15%. 38% chose genotype 3, serotic with Sofvel. 23% um, chose 3 and 4, and then 8% chose all of the above. So let's see what the correct answer is. Okay, so this is a chart just showing you the recommended and alternative regimens here in blue for a patient with genotype 1 disease, broken out by whether they are serotic or non-serotic. So our patient has genotype 1B, so he would either receive um, 12 weeks of Elbisvir, Grisoprovir, 8 weeks of GP, uh, the choice between 8 or 12 weeks of Lodipasvir, Sofosbuvir, we'll talk about that, and then or 12 weeks of Sofosbuvir, Velpatasvir. So how about 8 weeks for, for this patient? Um, does anyone believe that 8 weeks would be a good choice with Sofosbuvir, Lodipasvir for this patient? Why or why not? Right, the patient is African-American, and there are at least four studies uh, indicating that perhaps the um, response to treatment is lower in African-Americans with this particular therapy, so we lean towards using uh, 12 weeks. I also haven't told you his HIV status yet. Um, he does have an HCV RNA less than 2 million, but because he has these other negative prognostic factors, he would not be a candidate most likely for the eight-week treatment. So if the patient were 1A, um, and we wanted to use Elbisvir, Grisoprovir. This is a situation where we would have to obtain um, a resistance-associated variant test prior to initiating the therapy because if these were present, they could reduce the likelihood of SCR, uh, so we need to add ribavirin and treat for a longer duration. And here are the data indicating why we would need um, the addition of ribavirin and a longer treatment duration. So the overall SCR rate with Grisoprovir, Elbisvir, 94% for 1A, 99% for 1B, 99% in patients that have uh, genotype 1A with no baseline RAV. We go down to, so we get smaller numbers here, but 90% SCR if they have baseline RAVs with less than five-fold shift in Elbisvir. And then we have here um, two out of 29 patients, or 29%, the only uh, patients they're achieving SCR if you have an NS5A RAV with greater than five-fold shift with Elbisvir. So this is why it's important to uh, do these uh, tests prior to initiating this treatment in patients with genotype 1A. What if our patient had genotype 2 or 3 disease? So in genotype 2 or 3, our treatments of choice are glucaprovir, probrenosvir, and sofosbuvir, velpatasvir, because these uh, regimens are pangenotypic. And in terms of resistance testing, the place where it um, would be beneficial is in patients who are cirrhotic with genotype 3 disease who are um, initiating sofosbuvir velpatasvir. And here are uh, the data supporting that. So in the ASTRAL-3 trial, in patient, uh, these patients were either treatment-naive or they had failed prior PEG-ribavirin treatment, and they were randomized to receive sofosbuvir velpatasvir or sofosbuvir ribavirin. And in those with no cirrhosis, the overall SCR rate with sofosbuvir velpatasvir was 98%. It was 93% overall in the cirrhotic patients receiving sofosbuvir velpatasvir. And when you look specifically at the patients that um, had baseline NS5A resistance-associated variants, in particular the Y93H here, 
Um, the FVR rate dropped to about 84%. Uh, two out of these four patients here um, that, that uh, I'm sorry, four, the four patients here that failed, two of them had cirrhosis. So in the cirrhotic patients, the overall SVR rate was much lower, but in the non-cirrhotics, even um, it, regardless of the presence of baseline RAVs, the um, SVR rate was quite high. So in cirrhotic patients, genotype 3, considering cefosbuvir, velpatosphere treatment, um, you need a baseline uh, resistance-associated um, variant screen for the Y93H. Okay, so the answer to this particular question was three and four. These are the two clinical situations where a resistance test would be useful. Um, genotype 1A non-serotic with elbosphere grisopavir and genotype 3 serotic with cefosbuvir velpatosphere. Questions about that or additional points that folks want to make about that? Okay, um, what if the patient had genotype 4, 5, or 6? You're not going to see this as much. Um, it looks a lot like genotype 1, with the exception that Elbosphere, Grisopravir are not uh, recommended in this setting for 5 and 6. Okay, another consideration for our patients is the severity of liver disease. So um, we had a fiber scan and looked at this individual's platelets in, to try to determine whether or not he was cirrhotic. But some cirrhotic patients um, may require longer treatment durations or the addition of ribavirin. And importantly, if you have a patient with decompensated cirrhosis, protease inhibitors are not safe in this setting. There is a significant increase in the concentrations of the protease inhibitor because of impaired uh, metabolism. And so uh, we do not recommend they're not safe in this setting. Um, they should be reserved for patients who do not have decompensated cirrhosis. Another consideration is renal function. So cefosbuvir levels are significantly increased in patients with lower creatinine clearances. We do not know the clinical implications of that increase in cefosbuvir levels. It obviously has a very wide therapeutic index, um, so we do not know if the increase would result in harm. Uh, there are accumulating case series on using cefosbuvir in this setting, and we, we need these data because if you have a patient with both decompensated cirrhosis and significant renal damage, we don't have a good treatment alternative at this time. Glucaprovir perbrenosphere is the drug of choice uh, for renal impairment. You could also use Elbosphere grisoprovir. Okay, drug interaction. So this is um, another important consideration in selecting between the four different DAAs for a particular patient. So concomitant medication use is frequent in our patients with hepatitis C. Um, this was a, in a retrospective review of about 20 million people across 100 U.S. insurers, they identified 53,000 patients that had hepatitis C, and these patients were on an average of 10 prescriptions, and that does not include their hepatitis C treatment. So there are a lot of drugs that we have to screen for for potential interactions when we are considering hepatitis C therapy. This is a list of the most commonly prescribed um, medications in that particular retrospective uh, analysis. Okay, so um, someone asked if he's HIV positive. He is. He is co-infected with HIV, and he's currently suppressed on tenofovir, alafenamide, emtricitabine, and darunavir with cobisostat. Um, those of you who aren't involved with HIV treatment, this might sound uh, just like a bunch of jumbled uh, acronyms here, but um, this is therapy this particular patient is taking, and I would like to know if you know which uh, particular regimens are compatible with that therapy. 
that. Okay, let's see the results here. So 25% said uh, GP was compatible, 8% said Lodiposphere Sofosbuvir, 58% uh, said Lodiposphere Sofosbuvir and Sofosbuvir Velpatosphere, and 8% said all of them were compatible. So it is, um, it's a good thing now that we have similar, similar SCR rates in patients who are co-infected uh, to patients who are hep C mono-infected, and this has been demonstrated across all the um, uh, new DAA therapies. And this, so this is a major advance and a difference between treating in the interferon ribavirin era where patients with HIV co-infection had significantly lower cure rates. But consideration of drug interactions with the antiretrovirals um, is, is important. So this is a chart showing the different antiretroviral agents and the different um, DAA therapies. And it's color-coded. Green means uh, no interaction. Yellow means um, additional monitoring may be necessary. And then red means uh, do not co-administer. And so just some generalities uh, from the table here. Boosted PIs can be a challenge with the DAAs. Um, uh, with lodiposphere sofosbuvir, the main consideration is only when you are giving PDF with the boosted protease inhibitor. And that's because you have a double effect on tenofovir exposures in this setting. So you have an increase from the HIV protease inhibitor and an increase from the lodiposphere um, sofosbuvir. And so what can happen there is you have tenofovir exposures with PDF that exceed the range with established renal safety data. Um, at, in terms of the NNRTIs, efavirenz and etrovirine um, are incompatible with many DAAs, but not lodiposphere sofosbuvir. And the integrases are compatible with the therapies, with the exception of elvitegravir cobisostat. Cannot use this with elvisvir grazoprevir. And although there is no um, precautionary wording in the prescribing information with glicaprevir perbrenosphere, in the Expedition 2 trial, there was only one patient on this combination. So we do not have a lot of safety data on this combination, and there is an increase in the glicaprevir exposures with elvitegravir. Uh, Cobisostat. The NNRTIs are compatible with most DAAs, um, except for potentially with TDF. As I mentioned, when you give this with a boosting agent, you can have an increase in the exposures, which may be problematic. It may also be problematic in those with creatinine clearance of less than 60. So our question was, um, which of the regimens um, would be compatible with uh, Cobisostat boosted darunavir? And the answer there was the one that most of you chose, which was three and four, lodiposphere, sofosbuvir, and sofosbuvir, velpatosphere. Okay, someone asked about other medications that the patient takes. Well, he um, takes gabapentin, uh, albuterol, hydrochlorothiazide, omeprazole, and risperidone. Um, are you concerned about any of these medications and which ones? The omeprazole, certainly, yes, okay. So all of the following therapies may interact with sofosbuvir, velpatosphere, except, so which one does not interact with sofvel? Sofosbuvir, 
I'm sorry, I should have told you what those are. The, yes, these are direct oral anticoagulants such as um, rivaroxaban, apixaban. The bigotran. I dream a dream <laughs> Watch them back to back. So 14% um, said statins would not be problematic. 29% said hormonal therapies would not be problematic. 57% of you thought all of them were problematic. So let's see um, which of those is correct. Okay, so now let's switch to GP. So if you were gonna treat this patient with GP, which of the following therapies will not interact? you're voting. How come you're not voting? <laughs> okay, so um, about 30% thought statins would not interact, 30% thought PPIs would not interact, and 40% thought all of these drugs would interact. All right, so let's uh, see which of these responses is correct. Okay, so statins, you should always check for drug interactions with hepatitis C therapies and statins, okay? And that is the, re the reason for that is because there are multiple levels where an interaction might occur. So first you have an interaction that may occur at hepatic uptake. So OP1B1 is a hepatic uptake transporter. Several of the DAAs inhibit OP1B1. You also have an efflux transporter, breast cancer resistance proteins. So um, there are several DAAs that inhibit BCRP. In fact, most all of them do. Um, rosuvastatin is a very sensitive BCRP substrate. So when you see a huge increase in rosuvastatin exposures, that is likely because the DAA is inhibiting BCRP. There are also statins that are metabolized to some degree by CYP3A, and so the ones simvastatin, lovastatin, highly reliant on CYP3A for their metabolism. So um, there would be you know, a big problem with giving those if you were giving them with a potent 3A inhibitor. Um, atorvastatin also relies on CYP3A, but to a lesser extent. You can often get away with a lower dose with many of the DAAs, but not all. Okay, so statin's definitely a class to always consider. So this is a table of recommendations with the various statins and the DAAs. And so um, with many of the regimens, you can use rosuvastatin. I'll point out that this um, recommendation differs from the prescribing information. So in the prescribing information with lodipospir sulfosbuvir, it says rosuvastatin is not recommended. However, they did that drug-drug interaction study in the presence of a protease inhibitor. So it, wasn't, it was the predecessor to voxelaprevir. And so it is highly likely that it was the actual protease inhibitor component that was inhibiting BCRP. So the exposures of rosuvastatin are likely not increased to a significant extent such that you couldn't use it. I suspect it's very similar to velpatosphere where you could just use a low dose of, of 10 milligrams. So rosuvastatin is one statin you can consider with most of the DAA therapies as is pravastatin and pitavastatin.
Okay, so how about a management of patients on statins? So you should certainly avoid the ones that are contraindicated or not recommended with the exception that I told you about. Um, in, in patients with high ASCVD risk, we're certainly not going to stop their statins because as Arthur mentioned, this is what's killing most of our patients is heart disease. It's not the hepatitis B itself. Um, in some situations, we may need to switch the statin or reduce the dose. Um, some advocate in patients with a low risk of, um, that they, you could reduce the statin dose in that setting or consider holding it. So I think it just depends on the patient, their risk factors, and the provider's comfort level. My personal opinion is that you shouldn't stop the statin, that you can find a way to, to manage the interaction. Okay, PPI. So most of you recognize that proton pump inhibitors were problematic um, with several of the DAAs. So with Lodipasvir, Sofosbuvir, as long as you're using um, 20 milligrams of omeprazole equivalent, then you should be fine. But if you exceed that, then the re reduction in lodiposphere exposures could be up to 42%. So that's a pretty big um, decree. And there are specific guidelines around timing. Um, providers get this, um, get this mixed up a lot, and it's, it's um, hard for patients to remember it as well. But the recommendation around timing is that the lodiposphere sofosbuvir be given in the fasted state simultaneously with the PPI dose. Okay, but it's a different recommendation for Velpatosphere. So first they recommend not using a PPI unless it's medically necessary. But the timing around it, it has to be given um, Sofvel in the fed state four hours before the PPI. And the exposures um, can be reduced to 50% here with the Velpatosphere with either um, incorrect timing around the 20 milligram dose or use of a higher dose of omeprazole. Um, I've heard there's some data at ASLD on the combination of softvel that are coming, so we may have a change in our recommendations potentially or um, with, with those data. With softvel vox, there's a 50% reduction um, in the exposures, but there's no specifications around timing. Um, they also recommend not using it if you don't need to, um, but if you do need to, use 20 milligrams. So with glucaprovir pabrinosphere, so it's usually the NS5As that are sensitive here to the PPIs that have pH-dependent absorption, but in the case of glucaprovir pabrinosphere, it's actually the protease inhibitor component that is affected. Um, it's reduced roughly 50% or so with 40 milligrams. Um, it's not reduced as much with 20 milligrams. Despite this reduction um, in the exposures of glucaprovir, there are no warnings or precautions in the labeling. And a lot of that comes from the fact that they allow PPIs in the phase two and phase three trials. So they actually have some data on SVR rates in patients who were taking a PPI. So as you can see in this graph, the rates of SVR, either by intention to treat or modified intention to treat, were not different in those on a PPI or an H2 blocker or an antacid compared to no acid suppressing agent. And when they further broke this out in those on a high dose PPI versus a low dose PPI, they also did not see um, big changes in the rates of SVR. They were still high. So this is reassuring that SVR is not compromised, but even in the high PPI dosing group, they did not have any omeprazole dosing equivalents that exceeded 40 milligrams. So keep in mind, this isn't a free pass to use PPIs um, uh, above 40 milligrams. Um, they did look at the pharmacokinetics. This was a sparse sampling approach, so this is all based on modeling. 
um, there was a wide range of exposures in the high-dose PPI group, but it was not significantly different from those on no acid-reducing agent. However, when they looked specifically at a few patients that had paired samples, one before using a PPI and one with a high-dose PPI, they did see about a 41% lower exposure with the PPI. So we do know there is um, the drug interaction occurring in patients that was observed in healthy volunteers. It just doesn't appear to have um, uh, an effect on the rate of SBR for most patients. Of course, in combination with other negative prognostic factors, you know, it could potentially be problematic. So it's just something to keep in mind. So for most patients, um, bottom line would be that use of 20 milligrams of omeprazole would likely not compromise SBR for most patients receiving lidipasvir, sofosbuvir, and sofosbuvir velpatasvir. And with GP, a dose that um, did not exceed 40 milligrams would likely not compromise um, SBR. But as I mentioned, there may be clinical scenarios where a, a reduction in exposures could be risky. And that may be sclerotic patients or patients with other negative prognostic factors, or um, perhaps all patients receiving soft Velvox, because if they're on this particular therapy, they're on it because you know, they failed previous therapies and we want to make sure they have the best chance of achieving cure this time. Oh, and if you have access to um, Elbisvir, Grisoprovir, it is one of the DAA regimens that does not have an interaction with PPIs at all. Okay, so now we'll talk about um, direct oral anticoagulant therapies. So this is another class of medications that should give you pause when you are initiating hep C treatment. So these drugs are used for prevention and treatment of arterial and venous thromboembolism. So of course, if you're treating someone for arterial or venous thromboembolism, perhaps you can wait to treat the hepatitis C until the DOAC therapy is completed. That may be um, the best case scenario. However, many patients can take these uh, indefinitely. Um, here is a list of some of the different um, DOAC therapies. Dabigatran is a direct thrombin inhibitor, and the rest of these are uh, factor 10A inhibitors. The ones in red are ones that are not recommended or should not be used together. And the rest, if you look at the Liverpool website, um, say monitor. So monitor is not particularly helpful when you're trying to make a decision about how to um, treat patients with this uh, therapy. Uh, okay, don't pass out or leave the room. I'm not, <laughs> this is as far into the PK as I'll go and I'll break it down for you. So what we're looking for with DAAs and these uh, class of DOACs is one that has a pretty high bioavailability. And the reason that we're looking for a higher bioavailability is because if you inhibit PGP and the drug already has a high bioavailability, then you're not gonna get a huge increase in the exposures. But a drug like dabigatran, where you've got a bioavailability down to three to 7%, when you inhibit P-glycoprotein in the gut, you're gonna get a lot bigger increase in the systemic exposures of that medication because your bioavailability is improved so much. So we're looking for one with the higher bioavailability. Okay, but it doesn't end there. We gotta consider some other things too. So um, another consideration is the renal function of the patients. So you can see here big exposures based on uh, renal impairment for several of these. So you know that's something else that's important to consider. Also, what the dosing guidelines are around use with PGP inhibitors. So as I mentioned, these DAAs are PGP inhibitors. So you want to know what to do in the setting of um, this class of medication. 
And then the percent of the drug that's metabolized and how it's metabolized may also be a consideration. As well as the, uh, okay, I did cover the whole table now. <laughs> as well as the uh, status in terms of their um, advanced liver disease. Okay, so what, what can you do to manage this interaction? Well, we talked about whether you could wait if you're only giving the DOAC for three to six months or whether the treatment is lifelong. Uh, renal and hepatic function are considerations. You could use low molecular weight heparins as an alternative. They do not have an interaction, but a lot of patients don't want to deal with the injections. So your choices are to monitor potentially or reduce the dose of these DOACs, and I think that um, is mainly guided by patient-specific factors. There are some monitoring options which are not um, officially recommended, but I think can be particularly helpful in this setting. One is the use of um, anti-10A levels. So if your method is calibrated at your institution for this for the various DOACs, then you could use this to guide the dosing. Um, you may be able to find someone who's measuring DOAC concentrations as well in their lab, and then you can compare them to historical values. There is a factor 10A reversal agent now, but I think it's only available at major stroke centers, so don't rely on that. Okay, questions about the DOACs before I go on? Okay, um, anticonvulsants. So this is one of the most difficult interactions to manage. Um, patients that are on phenytoin, carbamazepine, um, you know, there's not many treatment options in terms of their hep C therapy. But many of them don't want to switch their anti-epileptic therapy because they may lose seizure control. I think all of us have probably worked with patients that have experienced this, unfortunately. If you can switch them, the drug, drugs with the least interaction potential are levetiracetam and topiramate, but they don't always offer the same seizure control as some of the older therapies. So a group in the Netherlands has been using therapeutic drug monitoring to attempt to guide the DAA uh, dosing in patients who are on either carbamazepine, phenytoin, or phenobarbital. And so right now they only have six patients in their case series, but they used either double or triple the typical declatosphere dose but only one pill of sofosbuvir, and they chose this therapy because the two drugs are given separately and you could titrate one or the other as needed. Um, but despite having a lot lower declatosphere levels than versus historical data, so here's the historical AUC without anti-seizure uh, medications, an AUC of about 14, all the patients had levels except for one, or two here, lower than that value, but still all six of them achieved SCR. Um, they do have sofosbuvir levels at this point, uh, even though I don't have it on the slide, and they were within normal range. So that's reassuring that the sofosbuvir is probably going to be okay, but the uh, declatosphere, as, as you can see here, is significantly lower, about 66%. So we need some additional data to reassure us, but this does suggest the possibility, potentially, of being able to use the DAAs with um, older anti-epileptic medications. And so this might be one strategy, if you can access declatosphere. Do you guys have an ability to access declatosphere? Haven't tried. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Have you, have you all had, to ha had patients that um, required anti-epileptic medications and tried to treat them at this point for hep C? What have you done? 
and they were successful in the transition. Okay, that's good. What did you switch them to? Capra. Sorry. Oh, okay. I'm not sure. have enough data or we have to have the conversation that maybe you're not going to get treated and he has to decide. I personally think there are some strategies here you could yeah. try and, and I would encourage you if you have the time to write it up to do so because this is an area where we need data. So, um, you know, if we, let's, we can go through these different options. And it, what have you done with your patient? I think we used just Keppra. Mm -hmm. You switched them? Um, so, switching to a more sort of uh, friendly, <coughs> friendly drug, which uh, Benetton is trying to get people off it. Just a comment on declarosphere, uh, you know, BID, TID dosing, for a, and, and then the added cost of declarosphere plus a phosphovir. I don't know what the cost of declarosphere is now, but the other ones have come down tremendously. So, <laughs> I don't I understand what you're saying, but then there is that flip side. Absolutely, and it's not the only strategy. So, um, Mike, did you have a comment before? About the cost? Ab or? About the anti-epileptic um, interaction. I don't know. Okay, Declatosphere, you have a comment about the cost of that? Did you just yeah, I was just going to say, I don't think its cost yeah. has changed, and it was pretty pricey. Indeed. <coughs> so some other strategies that I think are worth investigating. Um, the first, you could attempt to double the dose of some other fixed-dose combination products. So, for instance, Ledipasvir, Sofosfavir, if you were able to get um, a 24-week supply that you really only use in 12 weeks by giving them two pills a day. Um, I think that that would be something worth investigating if you do that. Please get some um, plasma samples and send them to me. I will happily uh, analyze them so you can have an idea of what the exposures were. Um, for many patients, you know, we know that the DAA therapies are forgiving for missed doses. So this is essentially like missing doses if you have lower exposures here with the anti-epileptics. And so there's, you know, a possibility that this could work. And in patients who are absolutely unwilling to switch, like your patient, um, it may be something worth trying. I think Lodipasvir Sofosfavir would probably be the one to try because it is um, not reliant on any CYP enzymes, which might be induced, only the PGP and GCRP, which uh, are also going to be upregulated, but perhaps not to the same extent. You might also consider adding ribavirin to protect against the reduced DAA exposures. So I would not do this in the absence of doubling the dose. I would do it in conjunction with doubling the dose, but it might be a possibility. And this is um, an example of this being done previously, just a case report there if you want to refer to that. For DAAs that are substrates for CYP384, I've heard of some groups trying this. So using a booster. So adding either cobisostat or ritonavir potentially to the therapy to try to protect against the reduced DAA exposures. This was done once with telaprovir and atazanavir or ritonavir in a patient on, I believe it was, um, well, I should look to be sure, but it was either carbamazepine phenytoin or phenobarbital. So I do know of a group um, in San Diego who is trying this with a patient now. So um, they, sh that, that, lady was at five weeks about a month ago so when she when they're done uh, she's on oxcarbazepine 
you know, that might be a nice model for um, uh, an approach for your patient. And again, publish whatever you find because it's helpful to us. I get a question about this probably once a month. What should I do? What should I do? But no one comes back except for the group at UCSD and tells me what they actually did or how it went. So I'm eager to hear how it goes. Okay, so um, we previously talked about how there is an increasing number of women of childbearing potential that have hepatitis C because of the opioid epidemic. And so we need effective contraceptive options for this patient group. Um, this is a list of potential hormonal contraceptive options ranked from being most to least effective according to guidelines. And I've crossed out IUDs, not because they're not effective. They're very, very, very effective. I have crossed them out because they um, don't have as many drug interactions um, to consider because the hormonal delivery, if they include hormones, is um, local. Did you have a question or a comment? No, I, I just I wondered if the audience members had a question or comment. Oh, okay. But, okay, but you know now that the IUDs were crossed out, not because they weren't effective, but just because. Okay, the drug. Okay, yeah. So I was responding to your facial expression. <laughs> uh huh. Please do. Crossed out IUDs with, I'm assuming, levonorgestrel, but if you have the atonogesterol implant, which is also extremely low serum levels, why is that also not crossed out? Oh, here? Yeah. Um, if we're talking about low circulating mm -hmm. levels of progesterone and interaction with the drug, I would think that the atonogesterol implant would have a similarly low serologic value as compared to IUDs with levonorgestrel. So just curious as to why you left that. Yeah, so um, I'm not going to talk specifically about the um, implants. But in the HIV literature, I um, was wondering if there had been some indication of interactions with antiretrovirals in the past, so I just didn't want to cross it out entirely. Um, but I was told that the IUDs, I had, to, I had absolutely nothing to worry about in terms of uh, better drug interactions. Right, so I, I think current knowledge would suggest that none of these are contraindicated in use of patients on ART in modern ART regimens. Um, well, with GP, there there is... ART, you said HIV. You oh, looked okay. at the HIV literature, right? Oh, yes. So none of these are contraindicated, mm -hmm. to my knowledge, in individuals living with HIV on ART. So if you're extrapolating that, again, just curious about... Yeah, and the progestins are fine. So we don't expect this to be problematic. Um, I was just thinking in terms of like whether or not you need to consider interaction possibilities at all. So um, I'll look into this more and figure out whether we need to, are there any classes of drugs that have the potential for interaction with this implant, to your knowledge? I'm, okay. I'm here at this course to learn about DAAs, but in regards to ART, I have no restrictions in use of um, LARC or combined hormonal contraceptives for patients on ART. Good. Okay, well, I'll definitely look into this one more and see if there are any interactions that need to be considered. The Liverpool website may have some guidance on that, but I'm not sure if they break it down by whether the progestin is delivered as an implant or taken orally. So we'll look into that more. Um, and there are... Oh, okay. Can you go back to that slide? So what does that mean? I should use this, huh? We can treat the patient for hep C if they're on any of those? Nope, that was the next slide. So okay. I'll show you in this table. These are just um, some possible hormonal contraceptive options. Um, and, and maybe there are others that I haven't considered here, but I was ranking them from most to least effective according to guidelines in terms of their efficacy. But here is the interaction potential. So the money slide is here. 
Um, with Elbasphere, Grisoprovir, Lodiposphere, Sofosbuvir, and Sofosbuvir, Vorpatosphere, there are not significant interactions with the contraceptive, so we don't have to consider those. Um, there is some suggestion in the European guidance that there's a, there, the um, uh, ethanol estradiol containing oral contraceptives should be should not be used for soft bell box, but I believe these data are in error because the LST elevations observed in that healthy volunteer study were in women not on the DAA phase of the study, but only the ethanol estradiol progestin phase. So um, I do not believe this combination is problematic. However, with prod and GP, you do have elevations in LSTs with this combination of ethanol estradiol containing contraceptives and the DAAs. And it doesn't appear to be a pharmacokinetic interaction. We don't exactly know the mechanism, but it is problematic. And so you should not use ethanol estradiol containing products during the DAA therapy with prod or GP and also um, for up to two weeks afterwards. You can use progestin only containing contraceptives. Questions about that? This effect of the ethanol estradiol appears to be concentration dependent. So in the studies of GP looking at 35 micrograms of ethanol estradiol, there were two women with ALT elevations, one with a grade three, which is five to 20 times the upper limit of normal, and one with a grade two, three to five times the upper limit of normal. But when they gave it 20 micrograms of ethanol estradiol, they had LFT elevations, but they were less than three times the upper limit of normal. So it appears that this is probably a concentration dependent effect. The higher the ethanol estradiol dose, the greater the effect um, or the greater the possibility of LFT elevations. So the answer to those questions, uh, first, all of the following therapies may interact with Sofvel except. So statins, PPIs, DOAX, antiepileptics can all interact with sofosbuvir velpatosphere, but hormonal therapies do not have a significant interaction with sofosbuvir velpatosphere. With GP, all of these are problematic. Statins, PPIs, DOAX, antiepileptics, and ethanol estradiol containing hormonal contraceptives. So how many of you have used the University of Liverpool website for screening for drug interactions? How many are familiar with this website? Okay, just a few of you. If you haven't used this website, it is a wonderful resource. Um, it's very easy to use. You type the DAA in. Um, you, just a, you don't have to spell it, just a couple first few letters, and then it'll give you a drop-down list and you click on the hep C therapy that you are interested in. And then you can use um, the other uh, column for the, um, the concomitant medication. And you can either look it up by drug or by class. Uh, Alice Singh in Liverpool, I mean in Toronto, also has a website. And I have found this useful sometimes for drugs that aren't included in the Liverpool website because not all of the therapies are, are reflected um, in their database. The AASLD easel guidelines also have some drug interaction information. And then if you're looking at interactions with antiretrovirals, um, those familiar with treatment of HIV, there are uh, interaction data in the DHHS. Oh, of course, yes. No, you're good. Go ahead. Okay, so our patient, um, we chose Lodipospheris sofosbuvir for this gentleman. He was treated uh, for 12 weeks. We, he was one of, in one of my studies, and so he had a pillbox, and according to the pillbox, he had 83% adherence to the Lodipospheris sofosbuvir. 
Someone asked earlier about his alcohol use. He is a heavy drinker. Um, he also uses marijuana and crack cocaine, but he does not report IV drug use. Um, his HCV RNA was undetectable at week 12, but 12 weeks after completing therapy, his HCV RNA was unfortunately detectable. We haven't um, done the, the sequencing yet to determine if that's the same strain or a different strain, but we plan to do that in the future. So the Achilles heel of hepatitis C treatment is of course a reinfection. And Dr. Kim will be talking about that next. So um, we previously talked about how hepatitis C treatment was, was pretty simple. And I think that's true once you get the patient on the therapy, but there's a lot of prep work. And one approach to the, um, the, this, all this prep work is kind of to divide and conquer. This is just a suggestion of how you might divide up duties between um, people in your clinic to assist with preparing for the hepatitis C treatment. Important will be education on preventing reinfection, um, management of the DDIs, and then of course all the administrative work that goes into getting the particular therapy that would be best for that, or that patient. Okay, so in summary, there have been tremendous advances in hep C treatment in the past several years. There are multiple well-tolerated simple treatment options. You can achieve SCR rates of at least 95% in almost all patient populations, including HIV co-infected individuals with eight to 12 weeks of treatment. But drug interactions are an important consideration and successful uh, treatment does not prevent reinfection. Okay, are there questions before I turn it over to Dr. Kim?